everybody. Um, in case you haven't met me, my name is Nigel. I'm Joe's um, worse half. Oh, no, better half. Oh, whatever. The other half. And um, it's my privilege to share for a few minutes with you this morning. Um, I'm going to kind of start off with a video. Don't normally start with a video clip. Um, I won't say much about this other than it's um, a, a fairly well-known Christian speaker. His name is J. John. And um, he's got a great story to share, which kind of kicks off our theme for this morning and for this week. So guys, if you'd like to play that, that would be great. There was a, a family that had acquired a little new kitten. And they were playing with their new kitten in the garden. And the kitten went up a tree and it got stuck between two sharp branches. And it couldn't get out. And it was in a lot of distress. And the family tried to get to the little kitten, but because of all the branches, it was very difficult to get to it. But the father was a pastor, and he was always coming up with great ideas. So he says, don't worry, daddy to the rescue. I'm going to get my car, I'm going to get a rope. I'm going to tie the rope round the tree, I'm going to tie it onto the car. I'm going to get in the car, I'm going to drive a bit, the tree will come down, and then we'll be able to manoeuvre around and we'll be able to save the little kitten. Everyone said, Daddy, to the rescue. Daddy gets his car, gets the rope, ties the rope round the tree, ties it onto the car, gets in the car, begins to drive, slowly, slowly. The tree's bending, bending. The car's moving. As the car moves, as the tree bends, the rope snaps. As the rope snaps, the tree flings back and the little pussycat goes flying in the opposite direction. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> Two weeks later, the pastor is visiting a member of his congregation. He knocks on the door, the door opens, the lady says, Pastor, come in. As he walks in, there in the hallway was his little kitten. He knew it was unmistakable. So he didn't want to say to her, that's my kitten. So he said, that's a lovely little kitten you've got. Have you had her long? She says, Pastor, you're not going to believe this. But it was two weeks ago. It was a hot, sunny Saturday afternoon. And I was in my garden with our little son, Johnny. And Johnny said, Mummy, please, can we have a kitten? And I said, no, we are not having a cat. We've discussed this many, many times. We're not going to have a kitten. But pastor, he pestered me and pestered me. The only thing I could think of doing was to say, I'll tell you what, Johnny, let's kneel down here in the garden and we'll pray to the Lord Jesus. And if the Lord Jesus wants to give you a kitten, he'll give you a kitten. Pastor, you are not going to believe this. When we pray, coincidences happen. And when we don't, they don't. All right, it's good that. Do you know, I've been dying to show that to you for about three years. Because I think it's fantastic. And um, Paul sent an email out this week about the 24-7 prayer, and he put that quote on the top of it from William Temple. Can you put the first slide up for me? That's it. When I pray, 
coincidence happen? I thought I saw it and I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to pray. The, I'm going to play the little kitten video in church on Sunday. We'll be coming back to talk a little bit more about the um, the 24/7 in a little while. In fact, Paul's going to sort of. This is going to be a bit of a tag team. Um, Paul's going to finish this talk off for me. He's going to be doing the last part. Um, there were some people um, from our church and some other churches out on the streets yesterday um, on the Healing on the Streets team. They're there every, sat- every Saturday, to be honest. And, um, and what they do, I don't know if you know this, but they set up a chair, a few chairs in town, and they just spend a couple of hours waiting around there and, and praying, uh, and uh, not just waiting around, waiting expectantly to see who wants to come and who God wants to um, meet with that day. And um, Joe was there yesterday, and a guy came up, and uh, he just said, oh, it's you guys. And he came up, he said, I, I need to talk to you. I've come, I've come to say thank you. Because last year, I was in incredible back pain. And uh, I came here several times. I came here every week for several weeks. Um, and you guys, your team, prayed for me. And uh, I just wanted to come and say thank you because I've been completely pain-free for 11 months now. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> pain-free. A couple of other stories um, that gets, we try and circulate the stories from the Healing on the Streets team. So some, uh, this person was prayed for, this lady was prayed for in April. Um, I don't have her name. She suffered from anxiety and worry. Um, the team prayed that she'd be able to get onto a bus, which she was very worried about. And she returned in July, so that was April. She returned in July and said to the team, do you know what, she was doing so much better, feeling more positive, and has been able to catch a bus. She said, I've had some other help with my anxiety, but maybe your prayers really helped me too. Isn't that fantastic? And lastly, um, one other guy who was prayed for um, following a stroke some months ago, and he returned in August, and he has completely restored movement in his arm and is now completely drug-free. Well, isn't that fantastic? So again, God is doing things, and um, you know, whether you're out on the streets or whether you're in your community or whether you're in your workplace, if you ever do have the opportunity to pray for someone for healing, you know, you'd always know that at that point, when somebody says, okay, will you pray for me, or you offer to pray for somebody, at that point, there is always a choice to make. The choice that we have to make. The, the choice is, am I going to allow the facts of this situation to impact my faith which will probably lead to drawing back and not praying or am I going to allow myself to see the facts of this situation through the eyes of faith and press in expectantly whether someone's got a cold or whether they've got cancer we can't heal anybody so as we come to pray we're always faced with a decision are we going to allow the facts to dominate our faith or are we going to view those facts through the eyes of faith And this is a really important principle for the whole of life. And I'm going to illustrate it with a story from the Old Testament. Uh, As you know, we've been running a series for the last few weeks called Building for the Future. Um, This is uh, the first uh, week I talked about getting ready. And we've then talked about investing in our younger generation. And last week I talked about 10 reasons to give. And today's talk is called How Big Is Your God? How Big Is Your God? And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to read a story from Numbers in chapter 13 and chapter 14. If you have a Bible, you can follow on, but I do have most of the verses up on the screen today. It's, it's quite a long passage. It's quite a long chunk. We're going to do it in bits. Um, let me just give you a bit of a background from this story. What's happening in this story is that God's people, the Israelites, have been freed from slavery in Egypt. Inc- incredibly, incredibly so, God has... Um, basically got them out of this horrendous situation where they, were, where they were basically treated as slaves. They've been completely freed, escaped the Egyptians against all the odds, and uh, they've been wandering around the desert, and they've um, been kind of, God's been interacting them, with them and leading them. He's getting them ready. He's getting them ready 
to go into this land, which is referred to as the promised land. The actual land is called Canaan. And um, God is basically saying, right, the land's over there that I've got ready for you. And uh, what he does is he asks Moses, who's leading these guys, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to send 12 spies into the land to check it out. Because this land is occupied by other people at the minute. I want you to send 12 spies. And we're going to pick up the story in Numbers uh, chapter 13 and verse 1 and 2. I'm not getting anywhere with this, guys. Thank you. So um, here we go with the first couple of verses. The Lord said to Moses, I want you to send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So there were 12 leaders. The next few verses are just a list of those guys, so we'll, we'll skip that out. But the next part picks up the story in verse 17. So Moses sent them to explore Canaan. He said, go on through the Negev, that's a desert, and up into the hill country, and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. God gives them really clear instructions. He says, I want you to go and get the facts about this land that I've got promised for you. Now, whatever we are embarking on, it's really important that we get the facts. Some people don't like facts and they prefer, can you move it on for me please, to bury their head in the sand. But the truth is that facts are our friends. And so the next part, I'm just going to summarize the next part. They go and explore the land and they bring back some of the fruit that's actually growing there. The grapes, by the way, are so huge that it needs two people to carry them on a pole. I mean, this is an incredible land. And we pick up the story again at verse 26. It says that they came back to Moses and Aaron, these spies, having spent 40 days there, and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, and there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. They said, we went to the land which you sent us to. It does flow with milk and honey. And here is its fruit. It's fantastic. But, they said, the people who live there are very powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, Anak, descendants of Anak are basically very tall, very big people, big, big neck giants. The Amalekites uh, live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Basically, what they're saying is this land is full of fairly tough people, these are the facts that the 12 spies brought back from their trip. There is amazing fruit, but the people there are very powerful and the cities are fortified. And the question is, how are God's people going to respond to these facts? What is their response going to be? Caleb is the first one to speak up. There's two, two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who are the best-known ones out of all these guys. And verse 30, Caleb speaks up. Can you move on for me? Um, Caleb silenced the people before Moses, and he says, we should go up and we should take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. There's a man of faith. 
But as you read on, you find that the others are less enthusiastic. And actually from verse 31, there's quite a big chunk here. The men who've gone up with him said, we can't, attack, we, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. Again, huge, huge people. The descendants of the Anak come from Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. Compared to those guys, we are grasshoppers. That was the kind of rumors that the other 10 spies spread. So in other words, what they did is they allowed the facts that they saw to impact their faith in God, which actually caused the whole community to start turning against God and start complaining. The story picks up in chapter 14, the next section. It says, that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we look at them and we go, what? Well, I do. I don't know about the rest of you. But anyway, this is how they were feeling. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose another leader and go back to Egypt. The story continues. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we pass through is explored, unexplored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we can devour them. Their protection is gone, but with the Lord, with us, the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. How does this story play out? What happens next? Basically, the people ignore Joshua and Caleb's pleas. In fact, they talk about stoning them. And the rest of this story, just in summary, how it plays out is that basically God appears to them in a kind of glory cloud. And he's pretty mad. He's pretty angry. And he accuses the people of contempt. And he's sort of threatening to wipe them all out. And Moses is on his face before God saying, no, don't do it. Don't do it, God. You're, you're more merciful than that. Don't wipe everybody out. So God listens and he does forgive them. But there are consequences. And the ten spies, the bad spies as it were, are struck down by a plague. And the next morning the people of Israel wake up and they think, oh my gosh, what have we done? So then they decide, I know what, we'll go in on our own strength and we'll just go and try and beat the land anyway. And they get beaten because God isn't with them. And actually, later on the people do enter the land, but it's not until a whole generation has died. Forty years they spend more. And none of those who witnessed God's incredible rescue back in Egypt actually enter into the promised land, apart from Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who saw the facts and decided not to let the facts impact their own faith in God. What do we learn from this story? I wonder. You see, the truth is that all 12 of those spies came back with exactly the same set of facts. 
all of them saw the same thing. But between the ten of them and the two, there was a massively different response. Let's look at both of those responses. The first kind of poor response happened because those people allowed the facts to impact the faith. And if we do that, it causes us to miss what God is doing. You see, despite God saying, I've got this land for you, I've got this, you guys, look at what I've done, I've already brought you out of Egypt, I can look after you, I am your protector, I'm your provider. Despite all of that history, they looked at the facts and said, we can't do that, those giants are too big. What they're effectively saying is, God isn't big enough for those giants. They didn't think that God could defeat the giants, even though they'd seen him do some incredible things. The giants in the land were bigger than God. That's how their thinking was, was going. And if we allow that to happen, we get into something which a friend of mine calls a loop of disbelief, which looks a bit like this. Okay? We allow facts to dominate faith. We end up going the wrong way. The arrows run the wrong way. Our faith is diminished and we act out of the faith that we've allowed to be diminished and we really miss what God is doing. And those guys, those ten spies, boy, did they really miss it big time. And what were the consequences of that? Now let me say something. I do believe that God has given each one of us a brain. Okay? He's given us a brain and he really wants us to use it. But our brains are part of a fallen creation. And so sometimes the way we deal with facts and circumstances in relation to faith in God can be a bit of a disconnect. Sometimes it's broken. Sometimes we look at the facts and our brain doesn't say, oh yeah, and God is full of faith. That's one of the reasons why the Bible encourages us to renew our mind. So think about a situation that you're in right now. What is something that you are facing that just feels really big? Maybe you've just landed in Winchester at university and you're looking at all the sort of breadth of everything that's new and you're going, oh my gosh, I can't, don't know if I can do this. Maybe it's a finance issue for you or a health issue or a housing issue or a job or some relationships. Maybe it's the building project that we're thinking about here and praying into here as part of the church. Whatever the situation is, it feels big. I tell you, for Joe and I, this building project, this feels big. The question is, is it bigger than God? And the answer is, no. How big is he compared to the facts in our O's? If we have a small view of God, then the facts of the situation are always going to seem bigger than God does to us, and we'll act in disbelief. And that's not going to work. So let's look at the other response. Joshua and Caleb's response. You see, they had exactly the same set of facts. Exactly the same set of facts. Viewing the facts through the eyes of faith enables us to move into what God is doing. The same set of facts, but they chose to lean into faith in God. And if we can do that, we're going to reverse that loop. It's not that way around this time, but it's this way around. A loop of faith. Not a leap of faith, a loop of faith. Could be a leap of faith too. You see, if God has spoken to us about something, then surely he is bigger than that something. 
And again, this principle applies to many, if not every area of our lives. So what has God spoken to you about? Let's personalize this for a minute. What are the things that God has spoken to you about? And you look at them, sometimes you think, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. The facts seem very big to me. Has anybody ever experienced that? Is anybody experiencing it right now with some issue in their lives? Bless you for being honest. The rest of you are too. You're just not prepared to admit to it, baby. See, um, Andy preached a few weeks ago, got up and told the story about how um, he and Ali had been on this journey with their housing and how they'd chosen to believe that God was bigger than the facts of their situation, the facts of their situation where they didn't really have anywhere to live. And God turned that around. If you missed that, catch up on it on the website. It's a great talk. You know, when Joe and I uh, moved down here to Winchester, coming up for six years ago now, we were on a big journey of faith. We had to uproot our family and everything and, and basically change everything, move away from our community, come down here, and we couldn't sell our house. We'd found someone who wanted to buy it, but they couldn't sell their house. We knew we had to be in Winchester at a certain time. We looked at the facts. The facts were that we got some places we thought in a school, but we didn't have anywhere to live near that school. And if we wanted to rent somewhere, we had to sign a long-term contract and pay a lot of money, and we couldn't really afford that. On top of that, we didn't know what we were going to do with our house back in Birmingham, which we were waiting to sell. All of this, all these facts. And we just kind of tried to say to the Lord, I mean, it was a daily struggle sometimes, but we said to the Lord, you know what, you're in charge of this thing. You, we think you want us to be there. We think this is what you've spoken about. I still remember I was at a gig. <laughs> And I just checked my phone, I got an email from somebody offering us a house to live in for a, for a few months. You know, God came through at every stage. There were a number of steps on that journey. That was one of the steps. Then getting um, our, all the forms, uh, the right forms for where we were living and the right forms in for secondary schools on a certain day, that was another stage. Getting the right schools application, waiting for a place for our younger one to get into school. And then there was the whole thing about selling our house back in Birmingham. And every day, I walked past the house where we were going to, we were going to buy. We knew we were going to buy it, but we couldn't buy it because we were waiting for our house to get sold because they were waiting for their house to get sold. In the end, we were in a chain of eight people. Okay? Um, and I remember walking past that house every day with my kids on the way to school and saying, we're going to pray as we walk past this house every day because God is bigger than this situation. And if he wants us to be here and he wants us to be in this house, which we think he does, then he's going to sort it out. The facts are there, but God is bigger than the facts. And again, in time, in the right time, God did it. You see, every time we had to come to God with the facts and choose to believe that he's bigger than that, and when we do that, we push into our faith. There's a kid's song by a guy called Doug Hawley. It's called, Have We Made Our God Too Small? He goes, have we made our God too small? He made the heavens and the earth, and he reigns on high, yet he's got the time for you and I. The glory of God light up the sky, the clouds proclaim, he reigns on high, the huge expanse of the oceans wide, a billion stars that grace the sky. I'm awed by the power, awed by the marks of God all around me, yet I'm humbled every day by my unbelieving ways, I really want it to change. Have we made our God too small? Really, really interesting song to teach children about the Lord and about faith. And sometimes the truth is that we have, haven't we? We've made our God a bit too small. And sometimes all of us need to come to God and just confess that. Say, so, do you know what? I've allowed the situation that's in front of me to get bigger in my eyes than you are, God. I don't want a small view of you. I want to be someone who views the circumstances of my life through the eyes of faith in a mahusive God. 
And the story in the Bible continues, and the whole generation dies out whilst the Israelites wander around for another 40 days, 40 years. And eventually they come back close to the land. 40 years later, they're back there again. And God speaks to them again. And we find this at the beginning of Joshua 1, which is where I spoke from three weeks ago. And God says, never will I leave you. Be courageous. Be strong and courageous. Get ready. Something's going to happen. And as I said when I spoke three weeks ago, at this point in the life of our church, this is a really important moment. I'm going to do a very, very quick recap of what I said. Sorry if you saw this two weeks ago. Bear with me. It won't take a minute or two. Um, But you may know that this church has been going for uh, 22 years now, ever since 1994. Since Hugh and Ginny planted it, this is Hugh and Ginny, and that's the house they planted it in, just down Chesil Street. Okay? You may know uh, that... um, Having grown to a number of small groups, they started to find different venues. And there are three, these are just three of the venues that they met in around town. Met in the council house, that's very grand. They were only in a room upstairs, they weren't in the whole thing. Um, in the lecture theatre at the university, in the community centre at Bar End. And then in 2000, pardon? Badger Farm, sorry, not Bar End, Badger Farm, thank you. Um, you may know that in 2000, they uh, got sight of this building that we're in now. Oh. There are some people. There's Andy. Sorry about that. Sorry, Andy. Didn't mean to do that to you again. Uh, this is the one I'm looking for. You may know that this was what this building was pre-2000, a body and paint shop. This is how it looked on the day that the church bought it. Okay. And uh, since then, a whole bunch of amazing things have happened. Um, I think we've got one more picture, which is here in Ginny. Uh, oh, that's how it looked on the inside. Nice. And that's how it looked on the first sort of iteration of Sunday Church. And then in 2000, 2005, this is the opening of this space here with Hugh and Ginny and the lawnmower. So, you know, it is, if you think about it, and sorry if you're getting this for the second time, if you think about it, it is incredible what God has done in a short space of time. Even just with this building. And it's not all about buildings, but it's amazing what God has done in this church. The journey of this building has been made possible by a massive amount of people giving sacrificially. It's been a sacrifice and a huge privilege for those people to give on behalf of someone who isn't here yet. Dare I do this again? Just stand up for me if you were here and you were part of that journey. Just stand up if you were part of this church back in those days. okay? And look around you and see who God has brought as a result of your incredible sacrificial generosity. You and many others. Thank you. You can sit down. I won't embarrass you anymore. It is incredible. It is an incredible privilege to be able to give sacrificially investing in something which then God is going to, a whole bunch of other people are going to come into. Now, I'm not going to spend hours talking about the building. You may have seen the plans um, on the wall. You may have seen the website. Um, But I am going to ask Kevin to come and just share about it for a couple of minutes. Have you got the microphone? Where's Kevin? Do you want to come? So um, you're probably thinking, who's Kevin? Well, Kevin is the architect. Not the great architect. That's something else. (laughs) He he, he is a great architect. But um, now... Kevin, you've been part of this um, project for a while, and I just wanted you to hear what Kevin 
view of this is because he's the one who's designed this stuff. And I just want to tell you one story before I do. When we first came to him about a year, year and a half ago, and we said, we're really thinking about whether the right thing to do is to do some work on the building. And one of the things that we've been thinking about is to move the front door of the building to the front of the building. We just, we just have this fear, feeling that the flow around our building would be much better if we did that. It would work better for everybody, guests, families, children, whatever. And Kevin said, oh, it's really funny you should say that. You know, 11, 10 plus years ago, I designed something, and that's where I put the... That's right, isn't it? That's, that's, that's where I put the door. And for various reasons, it didn't happen like that. So he said, oh, I've got this plan. He brought this plan in to show us what he'd already done, which is amazing. So Kevin, you just talk us through what's going to happen here and talk us a bit from your perspective. I'll move the slides on, hopefully. Okay, so this will be a quick architectural tour of the uh, proposals. But um, the building itself is an amazing building. You've heard something of the journey this morning. And, uh, and yet it still has so much potential. And there's a whole series of things that can be done to the building in a simple way to really maximize uh, its potential for the future. It's sort of thinking 10, 20 years ahead. So um, one of the key things is the building itself. Um, if you view it from the road, the main road over there at the moment, um, it almost says it's not a church. It says it's an industrial building. And it doesn't really invite you in. So one of the first thoughts was to activate that front facade and bring it to life and uh, turn it into much more of a community type of building. And so um, we very simply sort of thought, well, if you introduce a large canopy over the front there, it creates a strong visual image. It uh, creates a sense of shelter. Uh, there can be lights underneath the canopy which actually shine down and sort of make it uh, friendly at night time. There's some very simple things that can be done to that facade to bring it to life. At the moment you can see there's a large render wall over there and some uh, very old second, uh, secondary glazing on the right hand side. All of that would go. And down on the ground floor there we'd introduce a whole new glazed screen which would uh, introduce light into the building. It creates a much more powerful image for the building. Uh, two vineyard logos there either side and uh, a new entrance in the front so people can, uh, rather than having to go around the side, it addresses that issue of being able to go straight in at the front if you want to. So quite a simple way of changing that front facade. If I have the next slide please. Great, so if we sort of look at the ground floor plan, um, on the left hand side here um, is the new entrance area, the new screen, and things like that. There'll be um, a new reception as you come in on the left-hand side, and this will be accessible for wheelchair users. It also gives a great sense of security because it'll give one point of access and control into the whole building, whereas at the moment, um, the administration offices are upstairs. So it actually moves the reception office downstairs to the front entrance. The second entrance, which you came in this morning, will remain um, as a secondary entrance, uh, but that'll probably be controlled and locked during the week. Um, so we have a, a, a sort of a different flow happening here in the building. Um, as you come in through the new entrance, um, there'll be a staircase, the existing staircase, which takes you upstairs. Um, also, you'll come past the toilets on the right-hand side, which will be revamped and uh, Big Fish on the left-hand side will have new stores and will be decorated. Um, so you'll come through the new entrance and then you'll get views across the cafe area and all the way through potentially into this space here. So there's a much stronger sense of flow through the building inviting you into each part. So as you come into the coffee area at the back here, this will be decorated, um, upgraded, there'll be new stores, um, display walls and so on. 
probably one of the most fundamental changes will be just along the back here, there'll be a large acoustic folding wall, which will actually really help the flexibility and use of the building so that uh, you can get multiple use in terms of two areas being used at the same time. So it's quite a simple intervention there to create flexibility for the future. Um, the kitchen at the moment is great, but it's quite small. So the kitchen will be increased in size and uh, some of the units will be replaced and upgraded. The large store as well will also be um, increased in size as well. Um, so if we can go up to the first floor now. Uh, yep, one back please. Okay, yep, lovely. Um, upstairs, um, the building's all about flow. We've got a lot of young people here and at the moment, after the, uh, well, during the services, they have to go up the small staircase on the left. So a key consideration is being able to take young people through the main entrance and up the existing corner staircase there. So you come up through this corner staircase and into a much larger gathering space where there are lots of partitions at the moment. So those partitions will be removed, the children and others will be able to be registered and it can also act as a breakout space. Um, also at the same time, the toilets which are up there in the kitchen, those would go and in that place you would have two new male and female toilets and also a, um, an accessible wheelchair toilet as well. So rather than just having a wheelchair toilet down here on the ground floor, we'll also have one up on the first floor as well. Um, also to help flow, um, there's another gathering space near the youth areas. That'll be increased in size. And then very simply in the youth cafe at the moment, uh, there's an open kitchen area. By simply introducing a wall and a hatch, it means then that uh, the kitchen area can be upgraded and can be used by other people in the building without disturbing the use of the youth cafe area, sorry, the youth area on the right there. Um, there's also a couple of small rooms on the left here for prayer and counselling. There's a huge demand now for smaller rooms for private purposes. Uh, I think that's about it. If we can just have the last slide, please. Yeah, thank you. And so this is where we are now. This room is obviously quite dated and it goes back to the 1990s. So the, the walls will be lined, the blockwork will have insulation and wall linings. Uh, the blinds will be replaced with proper blackout blinds so you can actually see the words and see the screen, uh, which is quite important. Um, and probably the biggest change will be this stage. So the stage will become slightly bigger and um, the, there will be three projection walls at the back here. So you can actually enhance what you show in terms of a multimedia display. You can have separate screens running at the same time, words and lighting and so on. Uh, there'll be two large stores either side here, which will be great for all the equipment. Um, and they'll have racking going up to the ceiling. And uh, there'll be new stage lighting, AV and a revamped control desk. And then just finally, just to say, there will be a, a canopy over the side entrance here um, so that this area here can have its own entrance so it can be used at the same time as the other parts of the building. Thank you. Amazing. Wonderful. Now, 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 I happen to know that if you're an architect and this is your thing, you can tell he's an architect by the words he uses, can't you? Um, and you've been part of this church for a long time, you're going to put your heart and soul into a project like this, and I know that that's what Kevin has done, um, way beyond you know, some of the professional fees that we've um, paid him um, to do it, way, way beyond. And um, I was just really encouraged, I have been really encouraged, even the last two or three weeks, to hear that people are really taking this thing seriously, about just, just taking the time 
to stop and pray and ask the Lord what our response should be. And you know, we've said this a number of times, we're not here to twist arms. We're not here to raise money. Okay, we're not raising money, we're lowering money. God has the money. He has the resources. The question for us is, do we look at the facts and let them influence our faith or do we look at the God who's bigger than all of that and allow that to influence our facts? And that's why we want to spend a week praying. And so uh, we are... Poor Paul, I've maxed him out on time. Um, But we are going to be spending some time 24-7 praying this week. Okay, and if you remember right back at the start of this, I issued you guys a challenge. And I'd love you guys to give some of these out. Would that be all right? And it was a pray for three challenge because actually it's not about buildings, it's about people. And if you remember, I said, what we're going to do every day is we're going to just choose three people that we want to pray for, that we really want to pray that they will meet God and that they will get closer to God. Can you actually give out two? You probably need to take two of these each if that's all right. Okay, there, are, there should be enough. Take two each because I asked us and I challenged us every day just to set an alarm and I've been doing this. To be honest, my alarm's gone off every day and most days I've managed to pray. Only for like 30 seconds or a minute usually. But I'm praying for two or three specific key people. And this week, while we're doing the 24-7, I love us to be praying for these people intently. So if you're up for it, what I'd love you to do is take one of these for yourself and one to give back. Just write the first names. Write a different name if you think that it's going to... We don't want to do anything that will compromise anybody. You know, we, we don't want to... We want to be sensitive to this. But if you have somebody that you're praying for that we could also pray for, what we'll do is we'll take these cards, we'll put them up in our prayer room, and we'll just leave them there all week. So anybody who comes in to pray can just pick through these. You don't have to put any surnames on. You can put my friend. You don't have to put a name on. Um, but just, just, just how are you praying for this person? What are you praying? Just one name and just a little brief few words about how you're praying. And I'd love you to do that. And I'd love you to do that right now while Paul's talking. And then we'll collect these in at the end. Okay, and we'll collect them in and we'll use them as part of our prayer thing. Now, Paul, I'm not going to stand here and purport to be an amazing prayer warrior. I do my best. Paul is an incredible prayer man. And he's just going to give us a little bit of encouragement as we head into this 24-7. Take as long as you want, mate. Oh, brilliant. We've told the the kids we're going to be delayed. Bless. Thank you, whoever did that. Go for it. Right. um, Can you hear me? Yeah, ignore, don't put my slides up, actually, Chris. It'd be easier to keep it um, no slides. <laughs> then I can cut and paste. Uh, yeah, now I've just been doing this series about building um, for the future, and I just want to just share a few thoughts about what does building for the future look like for us as we kind of pray into it. And what I, what I mean by praying into it, yes, we are doing this week or 24-7, but it's more than that. You know, our, our desire as we kind of go into the future, as we build for the future, be it with physical bricks, but also as a church, is trying to create that lifestyle of prayer. So, yeah, we are running an event in the sense of kickstarting it, but it's more than that, is we're desiring to see a, a lifestyle prayer. If you've been around church, if not, you will see this coming up again and again. We talk about the vision, the kind of the, the context for this uh, physical uh, you know, presentation we, we just had. Because our, our, our desire as a church is to rewrite the story of our cities, of our communities, to restore hope and bring life to the individuals and the institutions and the communities that we're in. We want to see the reality of God's kingdom move and bring transformation, one life, one community at a time. And the reason that we're, we're pressing into it is because we feel like this is what the Father God's heart is. 
for us as a church, for us as a community. And in order to do that and to press into that, we want to press into prayer. And so that's what I'm going to share about. See, prayer is, is crucial. You know, if the vision that we're communicating as a leadership team does not drive us to prayer, I would say that we haven't got a vision that's large enough. Whenever God gives us a, a vision, be it as a church, as an individual, it should cause us to begin to cry out. See, prayer touches at the very heart of what it's all about. It's pressing into God's kingdom. Seeking to see the reality of God's presence, God's goodness break forth in our lives, through our lives, and into our communities. And if we lose sight of this, we lose sight of everything. I mean, I'm speaking on my behalf. You know, we might raise the money, we might get the building, we could create more space and get all the benefits that we've talked about. But if it's not birthed and carried on by pressing into God's presence, then we haven't, we've missed it. It's about God's presence. And that's partly why, you know, we're going to have this week of prayer. And that's partly why I'm not just talking about this week of prayer as an event, but as a lifestyle. Because that's what it's all about. We are doing these things. We're raising money. We're doing all sorts of things because we want to impact our community. But we have nothing to give to our community unless it's birthed and carried on in God's presence. I'm going to share a very... Uh, Quickly, Nigel asked me, going to give like 10 or 15 minutes? And um, no, no, it's fine. I'm not having a go. <laughs> Being a guy who speaks, it's going to like, I'm going to shorten it. It's turning into a massive talk. And uh, when I was driving home after Nigel kind of said to me, think about this. I kind of came to the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great story about building for the future. If you're kind of in this season, you're thinking, what shall I do this week and the coming weeks to read? Read the story of Nehemiah because it's all about building for the future. But also the story is just kind of rooted and birthed in a lifestyle of prayer. And I'm just going to throw out a few kind of uh, ideas. I was very encouraged as Nigel spoke because some of the things he said was what I was going to say. But firstly, I, I don't have time, but I'll say read about it. The story of Nehemiah is a story where um, Judah and uh, the tribe had been taken into exile. Everything was a disaster. They were kind of living um, away from their land. Some people started coming back. They rebuilt the, the, the temple. And this is a man called Nehemiah. He was a, a cupbearer um, for the king. And that's kind of the situation. The, the Jerusalem had been in ruins for 70 years. And in the book of Nehemiah, I haven't got time to read it all, but particularly in the first chapter, you get the story of Nehemiah, and he hears about what's happening in Jerusalem, that everything's been destroyed. And it broke his heart. I was going to put it in the Phillips translation. It just broke his heart. And one of the first things I noticed, and this is my prayer for myself and us as, as a church, was Nehemiah was not happy with what he saw. He wasn't satisfied with what he saw, but he took responsibility for it. And that's my prayer. As we come into this week of prayer and as a last, it's like we know that God has the answers to every situation. But around us, we see so much brokenness. And we're like, God, we want to see more. We desire to see more. And what it did to Nehemiah, what it should do to us, it just drove us to his knees. If you read chapter 1 of Nehemiah, it's just a great prayer where Nehemiah just kind of really takes a personal responsibility for it. He hadn't been involved in all the issues that caused the mess. But he's like, God, we need to see Jerusalem restored. And you can fill in that gap. God, we want to see whatever it is, your community, the lives of those you encounter 
to encounter God. And you see that again and again in, in Nehemiah, the story of him kind of going around, rebuilding the wall, kind of taking responsibility. Secondly, it was at a great cost. You know, Nehemiah had what you'd call a cushy job. He was a cupbearer. It's like one of the top jobs. And if you read chapter 2, he kind of goes into the presence of the king. He goes in the presence uh, and he's sad. Uh, just for that, uh, it, was, it was against the law to do that. It was treason. To go into the presence of the king looking sad was treason. Uh, you know, it was a great cost to him to go before the king and say, right, I've got this great job. I've got this great pension. I've got everything lined up for life. But I'm so dissatisfied with what I see that I want to do something about it. And that's, again, my challenge for myself. It's like, as I look out there thinking, we want to see transformation. We want to see things change. And that's why we're having this week of prayer. But also, like I say, for me, it's more not an event and then we tick the box, but a lifestyle to press into. Secondly, and this is where it links, very interesting. I didn't know what Nigel was going to speak on. I had a rough idea what he was going to speak on, but I didn't know he was going to speak on this. Because he's been talking all about facts and God's perspective. Not to ignore the facts, but not let that dictate how you see and do things. And Nehemiah, in some way, the book of Nehemiah is all about that. Because you see, particularly in the first early chapters, he starts walking around the city. He sees a destruction and he says it for what it is. It's like this city is in destruction. The walls are broken down. It's a mess. He's not living with his kind of head in the clouds. He's really aware of the destruction. But at the same time, he doesn't let that determine. He looks with what Nigel was saying with eyes of faith. He looks beyond what's there. He reminds himself of who God is and what God can do. You know, we want to see what God wants to do. We want to see what God wants to do in our community. And we want to call our community into it. Sometimes when you're praying into a situation, and I'm aware of it as we come tonight and we, we, we gather, it's very easy to see what's not right or we want to see change. We need to hear what God is saying about it. What is his original plan and design for our communities, for our people. As some of you know I do a lot of work in kind of Muslim countries and it's very easy to hear reports about what's not happening in the nations. It doesn't take rocket science to figure out what's a problem in certain countries like Syria and Iraq. But my prayer is not my prayer for us as a church is to hear what, what does God say about it. Speak about what he's saying. Declare his truth, declare his reality into that situation so he prayed into it but what I love about Nehemiah and I love in relation to somebody who's always trying to build and encourage prayer in the church is he didn't just pray but he acted as well in my time I've often found that sometimes it's felt like if you pray you don't need to do and if you do you don't need to pray but they walk hand in hand and so they kind of look at the situation they start praying into it they're not happy with it they're saying God you're mighty you can do it Let's start to pray. But in chapter 3, they start to build. And there's a couple of things I just want to throw out quickly. Firstly, everybody built. Everybody was involved in answering the prayer. Secondly, the other thing I, I love is everybody built in front of where they were. 
Everybody took a personal responsibility of what was there in front of him. And again, my apologies for you who just, uh, this is your first time here, but one of the things we talk a lot about in this church is this idea of being scattered servants. This idea of impacting the communities that you are in. What is it that's in front of me? What is it that's in front of you? And I know Nigel's going to give you these cards. And what I'd like you to do again is, after you've kind of written down three people you really want to see a breakthrough in, is kind of flip it over and write down three communities. What are three communities that God has placed in front of you that he wants you to pray into beginning this week? You know, I've just started thinking this through. And to really be specific, I don't, no, don't just put like Winchester. I'm not saying that's bad, or I live in Bishopstoke. We're just going to really be specific. For me, it's like maybe I live in Divine Close. There's like six, seven houses there. Just really be clear. What communities does God want you to pray into? It might be the school community. It might be the people you meet when you go and sign in at the job center. It might be the whole residence that you're being put into. It doesn't really matter. And so I'd encourage you to, on the back, on the other side, just to write down which communities is God asking you to pray into. And to begin to pray into that. To pray, and then, like you hear in the story of Nehemiah, they also acted. So to pray into things, but also to be the people that God can work through to be part of the solution, to see those prayers established. To help you do that, you're, just gonna, you're, gonna, you're getting lots of giving, lots of things. Nigel and Chris and Dan, maybe. Can we just uh, give these out? These are just a simple resource uh, and to help you as you uh, seek to pray. So how to break an hour into 12 or how to break an hour into four. I like to say it's me, but those who really know me know I'm really not technical at all. So I'm borrowed and nicked this from another vineyard church. But this is just a tool and there's other tools I can help you as we seek not just to pray, but to have a lifestyle of prayer as we seek to invite our communities into life. And just to finish, be like Nigel finished with the end of his story. He kind of finished, Nehemiah goes on longer, but in some ways Nehemiah finishes at chapter 6, verse 15, where it says, they completed the wall. They built and completed the wall. And I love it. It says they built the wall in 15, 52 days. And it just um, it amazes me. They've been trying for 70 years to build that wall. Somebody comes along called Nehemiah who has not the skills or the background. He has no right to be the person to build that wall. He had like soft hands, shall we say. He's a bit like me, not very practical at all. But he caught a vision of what God wanted to do. And he was able to achieve in 52 days what nobody else had ever been able to do so far. And I take that as a challenge to myself and I throw it as a challenge at you. What are the communities that are broken down around us? What are the walls? And let us individually and as a church pray into those and see achieved a restoration of our community.